Willie has constructed a myth of his life. Mm-hmm. A myth of how things could have been, and a myth of how things were, and a myth of how things are. Absolutely, all three of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just he, he chooses to look at the at life in in a different kind of rose tinted glasses, and and systematically throughout this play, different people get tired of it, and, and most and- most of those people are Biff. Everybody, welcome, welcome to the final week of Miller Month on No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome to this fourth week. We've spent four weeks talking about Arthur Miller. Who would have thought? It's uh, it's been a, a remarkable journey to see the just the different kinds of plays that Miller has written. The Crucible being perhaps of our four the most different of them. And now mm-hmm. we come to The Death of a Salesman, which will be, of course, widely known as the best of Miller's work, his sort of magnum opus, his most fulfilling, most longstanding piece of dramatic literature. Yeah, yeah. This is one that is studied often, performed often. Still, um, it it hits us capitalists in this nation right right in the old heartstrings. So so it's it's a good play that talks about a very specific time when uh, things were changing and and all the ramifications of that. So here we go. We're we're jumping right into it in a minute. Yes, we were going to jump into talking about death of a salesman. I'm sure you will get to it when we discuss context, or I guess I will. But I, before. Before we go any further, I do think it, that it's worth mentioning this play, 1949, when it was written, which means 2019, this is the 70-year anniversary. Is my math right about that? 60 years would have been 2009, so 70 years would have been 2019. This huh. is the 70-year anniversary of Death yeah. of a Salesman. Is that not incredible that, that this play is, is what it is 70 years later? Yeah, my goodness. Yeah, fe- February. That's 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 fascinating. Awesome. Well, cool. That's a, that's a great bit of trivia. There's a couple other trivia ones that we'll give you a little bit later on. But before we get to those, I do want to real quick take a second to plug our Patreon. Thank you to everyone who has already become a patron over on, over on Patreon. It's a great way to support the show. As you know, we do this show out of love and out of a desire to talk about plays and and uh, talk about plays with you, also with each other. Um, however, this show is not free to produce. It does require both time and money for us to produce, so... If you want to help out the show, be sure that we uh, continue to be able to bring this show to everyone who is listening. Check us out over on Patreon. We have a number of tiers over there on Patreon, a $1 tier, a $5 tier. We're working on something for a $10 tier as well to kind of offer different levels of patronship for you. But for as little as $1, you can get access to patron-only posts, which we are going to be churning out starting next month in April. And uh, yeah, there's just there's going to be some cool cool stuff happening over there. So if you are a longtime listener, hopefully you feel like you get a $1 worth of of, uh, enjoyment out of our show. And uh, if you have a second, check us out over at Patreon slash No Script uh, Script Podcast. And uh, you can see everything we got going on over there. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So back to the subject at hand, death of a salesman. Just a little bit of context for you. As I mentioned, written in 1949, obviously by Arthur Miller as the fourth script included in our Miller Month. It is a Pulitzer Prize winner. It won but way back in 1949. It also won the Tony Award that year. It was premiered on Broadway in February of 1949. So, you know, now it's the end of March. So we missed the actual 70th anniversary by about a month. Uh, Uh, But still darn close on to right at 70 years, which is just an incredible life for a play like this. There have been just a ton of revivals, several of them winning great Tony Awards. Of course, the the revivals that people really know a lot about, Dustin Hoffman in the 1980s did his revival. He um, won Tony Award for Best Revival for that. And then most recently in 2012, the play was revived at the Ethel Barrymore Theater with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman playing Willie and Andrew Garfield playing Biff. So that, of course, was an incredible feat. I've read a few reviews from that production, and my understanding was that it was just in, in absolutely incredible to witness and, and be a part of that. Um, as many people know, Death of a Salesman was made into a film starring Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich. Uh, the film is, it gets a little bit dated in terms of filming techniques nowadays. If you go back and watch it, it definitely feels like an old movie, but uh, there's still a lot of great stuff in there. Malkovich, especially as Biff, is really gripping in, in that film. And, and even with the way that they filmed back then, I think that there's a lot to see in his performance of Biff. Biff Biff is one of my favorite dramatic literature characters. I love some of the things that he comes across during this journey. And Malkovich is one of my favorite actors. So to see those two uh, (laughs) come together in that way is something really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Having them coincide, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, we're going to briefly synopsize the play, and then we're going to just jump off and go everywhere on this one, because uh, this is a pretty familiar play for all of us. Death of a Salesman centers around the Loman family, um, with uh, Willie Loman as the father, his wife Linda, and then the two sons, Biff and Happy. Which, Um, what... What weird names. <laughs> yep. Clearly both nicknames. I think Happy's yeah, name it, is Harold. Especially um, after we did All My Sons last week. It was right. like the parade of the dull names. <laughs> right. Chris, George, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Salesman's like, Biff, Happy, Bernard. <laughs> Bernard. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> So uh, so that's that's the Loman family there. We'll spend a lot of time with them with this play. Notably, the next door-ish neighbors are uh, Charlie, who is the, the father of that family, and then Bernard, who is the son of that family. So uh, Biff Approximately and, Biff's age. Yeah, Biff and Happy grew up with, with uh, Bernard, and uh, Charlie is uh, Willie's associate or yeah, friend. Kind friend of. and neighbor and rival, rival? potentially. Is, that, is yeah. that a good way to put it? object of jealousy um there's another family member who we will talk about who is uncle ben um who is uh willie's brother uh a kind of a nearly fictional character who floats through every once in a while and uh, has some bearing on the plot and um I believe that's pretty much it. There's a couple other ca- named characters. There's Howard Wagner, who is the the head of the firm um, that Willie works at. So we'll talk about him as well. But the gist of the story is Willie has returned home from another trip. He's a, a traveling salesman, and uh, he has returned home bum, from bum, Boston. Bum. Death of a salesman. Death of a salesman. It's in the title, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
But he has returned home from Boston uh, after after another journey there to try to sell in Boston, and uh, he's returning well, to he, his he home in New York. It. He didn't get to Boston, but that, That's that, that true. was, I think, the uh, the destination or the mm-hmm. the desired destination. Yes. Spoilers, sir. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And he returns home to uh, his family who uh, are newly staying there. Biff has recently returned home from a time out west, and Happy is in the house for that occasion. Yeah, Uh, he's just... Just kind of around. <laughs> yeah. Happy lives in New York. He's uh, quote unquote successful. He's working with a company and uh, he has his own place. But now with Biff home, he has come home to like sleep in the same room yeah, as him. It's a little odd. It's sort of like uh, when I go back to Omaha to see my family, occasionally one of my brothers who no longer live at my parents' house will come and stay the night while I'm staying the night at my parents' house just right. so that they don't have to drive home. We can all just stay and hang out as late as possible. So I imagine that that's sort of what's going on, but it's never really made very clear why Happy needs to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Even like the first lines they have are kind of like, gosh, isn't this cool? This is weird. We're sharing (laughs) room. We're back here again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's the jumping off point. And we just kind of slowly see the family... um, bring out everything that they have held in with themselves for the last X amount of years. Um, and and it slowly comes to to a head throughout the play in what is a masterful reveal of, of uh, dramatic literature. So let's jump in. I, I'd like to jump in, Jackson, with this question. What do we think the inciting incident of the play is? I think that there's a number of potential things that set off the course of the play, depending on what you think the main through line of the play is. Let me offer the easiest one that you've already said, which is Willie Loman returning home after a failed sales call. Uh, He attempts to make his way to the Northeast, which is his area of the country to sell. I don't know that we're ever explicitly told exactly what he's selling. I don't think it matters a ton. He's some sort of, he's got wares enough that he can carry them in a suitcase. Like Um, samples. Samples of some sort. We're never, never really sure exactly what I don't believe. Um, so he, he comes home because he didn't make it all the way. He, he's been having trouble driving lately, we learn. He can't stay focused. He ends up veering off the road. Much later on in the play, we learn that he almost killed somebody while he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he heads up to the Northeast on another week of sales calls. We get the feeling that he's sort of gone during the weeks and home on the weekends selling. Um, but he, he didn't make it. He turns around and comes almost right back. He's gone a whole day because on the way home, he says he only goes 10 miles an hour. He's so worried about drifting off the road. So he returns home and that potentially sets off one line of the play, which is what is Willie going to do now that he can no longer be a traveling salesman? Not just Mm -hmm. because he's now become very bad at it and is only living on his commission and his commission is not very much, we learn, but also because his failing health has meant that he just can't do the traveling. So that's one potential line of the story that is incited by that incident. Yeah, I, I and I think that's a pretty good one to to uh, to start with. It's certainly for the audience the first thing that we uh, interact with is is that inciting incident of him him returning home and needing to grapple with that. Um, I would probably and and I'm guessing you would too take it back a step further to Biff coming home. Um, 
I think Biff's arrival home after there's there's a couple things about Biff. Biff has run away basically from home. He's gone out west. He says I think he'd lived in I think he says he lived in seven different states and tried to make money in them. He bounces from different like cattle herding jobs um, yeah, around the west. All kinds of work. Like at one point we learned that Willie had to pawn some valuable uh, trinket of some sort from his brother in order to pay for like radio engineering classes that right, he wanted yeah. to do at one point. So all kinds of stuff like that he's been doing. Most mm-hmm. recently, I think cattle herding. Mm-hmm. And pretty notably, very recently, there was a stint of three months where they didn't hear from him at all. He just went off the radar. No, he, he, he was writing before, and uh, suddenly they didn't know where he was, what his address was, and they didn't hear from him. And he so, claims, at least right away, well, I just didn't have an address. I was bouncing around. I was on the road. You just didn't hear from me. There was nowhere for you to send mail. Nothing was going on. I just, you couldn't find me. I was just on the road. Mm-hmm. But... He comes home. Finally, he he arrives home. Willie picked him up at the train station yesterday, and apparently there was some altercation at that moment, and that has kind of set things spinning uh, within the family. Everyone's really worried about each other. And it's we know that it's set things spinning not just because of the tension, but also because of what Linda describes to the boys, which is she says, you know, Biff, whenever you come around, it gets worse, whatever is going on with Willie. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. And what she says is when he first hears that you're coming home, everything's better. He's immediately happier, happier. He's clearer. He's sharper. He's more engaged because Biff is coming back. But as the date of your arrival approaches and approaches, he gets worse. He gets more sullen. He gets more depressed. He gets more confused until by the time you get here, he's a shadow of his former self. He's a lost person. Um, and so if you take the Biff's arrival inciting incident, sort of a inciting incident before the play, then you would include this sort of le- maybe even learning that Biff is coming is the inciting incident of some sort, which sets Willie on a track of uh, really that inciting incident would be the incident of the the through line of what the maybe more of the like the family clashes part of the play the family crashes but perhaps a way to unify it is the sparking of a good chunk of Willie's shame. Willie carries quite a bit of guilt for things in this play. Everyone does. Everyone lies through this whole no, play. Lying, just, just all the time. What is true? I mean, yeah. there are, I think that there are things at the end of the play that you still don't really know. Right. What exactly is true? Because the whole family is a bunch of liars. Yeah, and and it gets to the point that he just calls it out eventually. At one point, he's like, "You're not a salesman. You're like a second tier analyst oh, yeah, that's or something. The, Biff to Happy, one of my yeah. one of the great lines to the play. Happy's like, Happy's like, oh, I'm not a liar. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, what are you really? You say you're the assistant buyer, but aren't you like the assistant to the the second assistant to the third cousin of the whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, a great moment. Biff has some of the great confrontational lines of the play. So, so those are two possible options. I'd like to suggest a third, which is a little bit further into the play. And the reason why I think that this is at least worth noting is that both of the things that Jackson and I have alternately described as possible inciting incidents 
are part of the regular patterns of Willie's life. He's starting to, over and over again, be bad at driving. He and Linda are deciding together, and they have been for some time, that he just can't be a traveling salesman anymore. So that potentially is part of, you know, if we were, if we thought this play followed a really classic sort of, uh, you know, a climactic moment uh, plot figure. I, I forget the name for that plot figure, but, you know, it's like the mountain and then the denouement. If we thought that it followed that, that, then um, that the fact that Willie is becoming unable to be a traveling salesman, as I described, could be part of the like the regular world. And actually, the same could be true of Biff. We know that Biff comes back all the time. Every couple of years, he comes back after not being able to do what he's doing, and he stays, and he and Willie get into an argument, and then he runs off again. They describe that sort of same pattern over and over again. One potential thing that is new in the midst of this pattern of their lives, Biff returning, Willie falling apart, one potential thing that is new, one prop item that is new, a newly discovered prop item, what might I be talking about, Jackson? Well, Linda discovers the pipe, the the, the like the rubber tubing yes. uh, d- down on the radiator, yeah. And, and yeah. what's the significance of that? Well, that's that's a really kind of obscure mechanical reference that I, I it, it's it's hard to pick up uh, reading right now, but it, it's a way that that Willie can connect to the gas line um, of the 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 radiator heater for the house and and inhale uh, the the fumes from the gas line. Um, so so Linda discovers that. Willie is through through this mechanical prop. She discovers that Willie is discovering ways to take his own life and beginning to tinker and plan around with that. And, uh, and, and that, that, that's her struggle then is like, she is starting to, to push towards wondering, does she take away the tube? Does she leave it there? Does she confront Willie? Will it mess things up even more? Who knows? So that is a potential candidate for the inciting incidents of this play. What makes the events that occur in this play different from every other time Biff has come home? Different from all the other times that Willie's sales calls up in the Northeast have gone so badly. And what is different is... The stakes are suddenly much higher. Everything that has gone on before, all these terrible patterns that the Loman family has fallen into, that they find their lives decaying under, all of these just burdening patterns that they are in, are suddenly sharpened, suddenly made much more deadly. The stakes are so much higher now that there's a length of rubber tube in the basement. Mm-hmm. You do. I, I totally agree with that. You do get the feeling that at multiple points in this play, if one choice had been made differently, things could have just reset to normal, or or if if not normal, the normal pattern for the Lomans. Um, you know, if if Biff could have just lied one more time and then left eventually, perhaps uh, everything would have returned to a normal pattern. And, you know, Happy would come home sometimes, Biff would write home, Willie would keep trying to go to Boston and borrow money from Charlie to keep it afloat, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but, but I agree that it's, it's the moment that they discover that what, what Biff can't abide in Willie and, the, and what he views as a, a, a form of cowardice, um, that he can't abide it. So he confronts the issue when no one else in the family will. 
And of course, all these things are wrapped up in each other, right? I mean, we sort of described these things, uh, the, the salesman through line, the family through line, the mental illness through line, as if they're sort of separate stretches of the plot. But, but obviously, they're not. And that's one of the, the parts that is masterful in Miller's constructing of the play, is that all of these things that are falling apart so tragically end up all falling apart together, all woven in this history of shame and regret. Yeah, yeah, just so so much of that too. Like multiple levels of shame and regret. <laughs> like let's let's, let's uh, so so let's jump into a little bit of that that business. That, so first of all, there's a whole bunch of flashback scenes in this. And before we jump into them and the shame and regret, perhaps it's best to describe why. Um Willie, there's there's something wrong with Willie. Um, he comes home and he's talking to people who aren't there and, uh, or, or it looks like it anyway, he seems to rave on about different things. And, um, at the start, we don't really know why, but through the, what is pretty masterful, uh, controlling of stage elements and, and, uh, you know, it lighting and set design and, uh, and evolving of multiple scenes at once, we begin to realize well, what do you think we realize? What What do you think Willie has? Um, well, it's one of those questions that goes around and around as time goes on about the death of the salesman. What actually is wrong with Willie? We know something is. There is something physically wrong with Willie's brain in, in the way that mental illness works. Something is happening to Willie that is outside of his control. In fact, Linda even says, you know, Willie's a, a good man who has take, tried to take care of his family and something terrible is happening to him. She names that this isn't just Willie... Uh, you know, is a bad salesman and is suddenly discovering it or Willie has this history of being a bad father and it's coming to light. No, there's, there's something physical going on with Willie in the brain. And lots of people float lots of things, right? One of the more commonly suggested things is it's dementia. And yeah. there's almost undoubtedly some facet of that occurring. Willie, Willie is an older guy, lived a hard life, not even just the life of the salesman that we learn a lot about, but in the little tidbits you learn about his childhood and his family life, I mean, some of that was really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's, he's just weathered a lot. And as he gets older, things like dementia are taking over his brain. Yeah, and and tie that in with a lot of of held guilt and shame and time alone with yourself. Um, he's he's on the road all the time. He's in a car by himself a lot of the time. And so so <laughs> we've all talked to ourselves on the road before, right? Um, and, <laughs> and I think I think Is that he, a confession. He, yep, and. <laughs> And I think I think that's what uh, you know that practice has has evolved uh, as well into into something more something that is outside of him attacking. I think I think dementia is a strong choice if you're going to play it, yeah, but there actually, are other ways to do it. And, as and well. the boys I think say you know Dad has always mumbled to himself. I think in that first scene in the bedroom they say something to that effect. That's always kind of happened, but lately he started to talk out loud and yell at people who aren't there. A little bit different 
than just sort of the mumbling to himself that he that he's always done. So so dementia is an option. Obviously, something like even as extreme as schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder doesn't exist too far out of the realm of the symptoms that Willie's experiencing. But I think the other strongest candidate is something like bipolar disorder. Now, Arthur Miller, I'm not sure in 1949 would have been able to say this is the specific mental illness and the specific symptoms right, 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 that right. Willie is suffering from. So he he imagined somebody who's suffering from a lot of mental illness. And probably some of this is all of it wrapped up in one. Depression, I think, obviously exists as a facet of what Willie is suffering from. But, you know, if I were coaching an actor, I, w- I would maybe coach them towards um, some of the more clear realities for people who suffer from bipolar disorder. The sort of sharp turns in Willie's personality, his outlook on life sort of mimic that mountain and valley kind of look that bipolar people with bipolar disorder str- suffer from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a good choice. And certainly within the world, you can see the effects of it. Um, it's not just uh, kind of, some plays when a character is dealing with ghosts of the past, for instance, will have strictly aside scenes. And there are some of those in this play. There are flashback scenes and we'll get to them in a moment. But there are also scenes beautifully layered in which a character will show up to Willie in the middle of a conversation with someone else and he will have to try to engage in conversation with both of them as they are both talking to him without talking to each other. So Yeah, it, it works really well to highlight the confusion that Willie is living in. You sort of start to get a sense of what it must be like to be in Willie's brain trying to have multiple conversations at the same time. A great example of this is he's out to dinner with Biff and Happy, and at the same time he's trying to have a conversation with Biff about how a business meeting went, he's having a hallucination of young Bernard coming to him and saying, hey, Biff is going to flunk math if he doesn't study. Hey, Biff needs to study. And so Willie is trying desperately to have a conversation about a business meeting and about his son needing to study math. But the son that needs to study math is the adult son sitting across from him. And so the wires start to get crossed about who exactly he's talking to when he says Biff. Is he referring to the Biff across the table from him or the young memory version of Biff? Yeah, yeah. The other one that pops to mind is he finally gets up the courage to go to the office and tell his boss that he needs a job in New York. He can't travel anymore. And during that scene, his brother, Ben, um, kind of appears to him and uh, comes into the scene and begins talking to him. And it just turns into this. He's yelling out of frustration at everything that is happening. Um, But also the, the lack of loyalty from his what was his boss's son um, and that he won't give him a job. But then also Ben is there and Ben is this, Ben is this complicated character in the play. Ben serves as like both salvation, but also uh, extreme jealousy. It's, it's missed salvation. Um, uh, it, it's sort of an American, a version of an American dream, right? right a right. lot of this play. And honestly, a lot of what Arthur Miller writes tends to be sort of American dream centric. Like yeah. uh, how, how is the American dream falling apart? Well, death of a salesman is a lot about that. And there's, 
kind of two parallel dreams that Miller presents. One of them is the sort of city businessman, the salesman, sort of sharply dressed, uh, has lots of friends, is wealthy, has a big house, and sons who love him. Tennis courts. Tennis courts. He describes a salesman who grows up to be 84 years old and is still able to make calls and and be a successful businessman at that old. And that's sort of that version of the dream for Willie, this wealthy old man who people still love. But then the parallel dream is the dream of Ben. And what's what's the dream of Ben like? What is it about? Ben is like the 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 Indiana Jones, maybe? Yeah. Or yeah. the gold rush seeking, culturally appropriating person who goes off and like makes his fortune based on their raw charisma and and ability to uh uh face the elements and come out victorious. He says over and over, he went into a jungle with the clothes on his back and came out full of diamonds. And <laughs> so that yeah, that's it's who like, Ben is. Like conquering nature. I'm right. gonna go out and do it on my own yeah there's yep. the, the sort of that dream and, and and that's the one that willie feels like well he misses out on both of them actually mm-hmm. um and he sort of pines missing out on both of those dreams constantly mm-hmm. that one though there's like uh, if we are to believe that the events actually happened and i think the flashbacks give us the credence to do so um that off one the, seems off the like top of my head one thing that i was never sure about was if the present day Linda ever acknowledges that the 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 historical events with Ben ever actually occurred right um, and I, and I, I'm not sure off the top of my head whether that's true I don't I don't know that we have quite the material in front of us to prove that like the stuff with Ben was all a hallucination but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that at least much of what Willie remembers about the visits or it might have just been one visit again that's a little unclear what, what much of these scenes that occur with Ben whether they really happen that way well, again, this family inflates everything. So even even if there were multiple visits and even if the opportunity did present itself, who knows what it actually was? What it was in their minds was this. And and if it was this, it was kind of concrete, right? Like he had the choice to go with his brother and and uh and manage land in Alaska for him. And that would maybe bring about the chance to do real estate and, you know, make life up in the woods and make money up there. And that would have been great. Um, But instead, he was at a point when he was kind of on what he viewed as on the rise within the firm, the people who were the bosses. Interesting. I'm not sure that he, well, at least in the way that the scene is remembered, he's not really the one that thinks that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Linda. The, uh-huh. the scene that you are recalling is a, is a memory scene. So, again, the, the facts of what really happened are very fuzzy. But in, in the scene, as you suggest, Ben says, come out and work in Alaska with me. I'm going to give you all this timberland, and you can be the person that runs this timberland for me. And Willie is like, that sounds awesome. Get my boys out into the wilderness. Let's go. And Linda says, you know, you have a job here. Aren't you about to make partner at the firm? Don't you remember that 84-year-old salesman you really want to be like? Mm-hmm. We should stay here instead. Yeah, and he's like, oh, yeah, 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 the 84-year-old salesman. Ben, you wouldn't believe the 84-year-old salesman. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of that kind of back and forth. That's, again, why something like bipolar disorder has has its roots in scenes like that where Willie just can't seem to have a grasp on anything. He Mm -hmm. he swings wildly from one opinion to the next, from one emotion to the next without sort of any real regard for what's true. 
Yeah. Yep. There's also one more before we move on from Ben, and we should, but there's one other, like, I think, tick that is just brilliant that Miller has thrown into there. Ben is this, like, very much older brother to Willie. Like, probably at least 10, if not more so, years older than Willie. And um, so there's also this, like, hero worship thing going on with with him in that, in that uh, he never, uh, Willie never knew his father really all that much. His family is all kind of clouded in in um, in separation and and hard things. And uh, yeah, they they like they lived out in the Midwest. Yep. But then um, his dad like left to yeah. somewhere to to try to be a lumberjack or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but but Ben is like his connection to his past. So in the same way that Willie tries to show off. Um, how good Biff is to just everyone. He really wants Ben to think he's good, um, and and he so 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 that's all tied into this vision as well. His older brother came and like gave him an, op- an opportunity, and he turned it down. And now, and you know, now years later in the present reality of the play, as his life falls apart, all he can do seemingly is look back and say, "I should have gone to Alaska. Right, this one right. moment in my life, I should have done that." I should have gone to Alaska. I should have gone to Alaska. I should have gone with Ben. Everything would be different. And so Ben then exists in the present reality of the play as an I should have, a sort of shining alternate reality that might have been. And that becomes very poignant later when the imaginary figure of Ben becomes the one who coaches Willie into the tragic conclusion of the play. And I think choosing to have Ben do that is a really poignant choice because Ben represents this like, I'm going to get rich quick. Everything's going to come to me at once. All of what I wanted comes into this one figure, which is this transparent hallucinogenic hallucinogenic Ben. And that is the thing which creates the very real reality of Willie's suicide at the end of the play. Yeah, yeah. The the falsity of that brings him in. Yeah, that's beautiful. That, 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 That brings about the ultimate destruction, that chasing that goal and that regret um, brings it about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also think, as we can tell from, again, constructing a timeline of what happened in Willie's life is incredibly difficult, if not almost impossible. Yeah. Because we just – we know almost no facts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little true, clear, this is what happened facts that we can glean. But based on a loose timeline, I think we can infer that Ben visits and ultimately Willie decides to stay partially because of Linda's – pressure on him um all before biff discovers the affair and i think we know that because biff and willie's relationship seems to be good when yeah. ben is there does that seem like good reasoning to you i think so yeah yep so yeah. i have i've been interested in whether you think jackson there exists a connection between linda being the one who forces willie or not forces but suggests willie should stay and willie's eventual affair Ooh, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I I do think that in that scene there is the seed of what some of what Linda carries. Linda doesn't uh, have as much time to talk about the the what she carries in terms of guilt or shame within this play. She is she serves as kind of the watchdog again in this in this play, um, and. Uh, so so that scene I have looked to as like maybe she carries some shame for that, but I didn't think about it in terms of it cueing the affair on the road. Um, 
But that's a good point. And of course, I mean, it wouldn't be a conscious thing, but but could it be that Willie feels that that because Linda ruined his opportunity or 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 perhaps better said that Linda represents the sort of stay in New York nothing changes this is the track we're on i am who i am and i seem to be disappointed with who i am version of willie and there's no escaping that and so he tries to escape it at some sort of subconscious level through an affair mhm yeah, I think that's a perfectly good motivation. I don't think it 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 gets him off the hook for anything. No, of course but, not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think I think that's definitely. I think his family in general represents that to him. I think if he if he had wanted to, he he would have. I'm crossing my Miller plays a little bit. There was a there's a line in the previous one about I, if I had 25 cents, I could save myself. Um, but um, <laughs> but I think that's the similar mentality. I think if he could have, he would have left alone and maybe brought just his boy. Interestingly, he doesn't say anything about Linda coming to Alaska. He says, yeah, boy, dream. my boys and I would be great up in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that it's all tied into that. I, I, yeah, I think, I think that definitely could cue it. I, one of the things that I really enjoy about the way Miller wrote Willie, some of the sort of clever reversals that Willie makes all the time in his present opinion of things. For example, he <laughs> talks about his Chevy. And uh, within the same two pages of dialogue, he says that the Chevy was the best car ever built and also that they should prohibit the manufacturing of that car. Right, yeah. (laughs) And that kind of stuff happens over and over and over again. Within the same two pages of dialogue, he says that Biff is this lazy boy. Uh, The big, big problem with Biff is that he's lazy. And then, you know, within five minutes, he goes, the great thing about Biff is that that boy is not lazy. Right. Nothing lazy in that boy. Yeah, which is, I mean, watching this play, if if you were to come to this play with a blank slate, which is almost impossible to do at this point in Western culture, you would be laughing at those scenes, right? And and you would be not knowing the context. This play is pretty funny. Oh, I I totally agree. And I, I agree that you're meant to. I think yeah. it's a way that Miller puts you almost in the mindset of the sons and in a way to say, dad's got kind of a funny brain, doesn't he? Yeah. And you kind of chuckle about it and you go, oh, he just said that he loved the Chevy, but now he's saying that he hates it. He just said that the fridge had the biggest ads in, in the whole world and that's why they bought it. And then he also said that they should have bought a well-advertised machine. Right, yeah. I mean, they go back and <laughs> forth and you sort of chuckle along and, and then- Late in the play, when Linda makes the accusations against the boys that they don't care about him, that all they do is laugh about him, that 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 they just see him as this sort of senile old person, nothing good in him, nothing worth caring for anymore. When all those accusations start spilling out, you and the audience kind of go, oh, I thought it was no, funny too. <laughs> man. Yeah, I think that's why this one of the significant reasons why this play has so much staying power is because every generation it happens again, right? Like every generation, a new generation comes due for having these experiences of what their parents are like as as they you know begin to finish their careers and figure and look back on their careers. Everyone has this experience, and 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 maybe it's not exactly this. Of course, there's variation in it, and hopefully, not everyone has this experience. But um, but this resonates with people, and uh, and it and it incriminates 
people as well because of its slow way of revealing uh, what is actually wrong with Willie. At the start, it feels all fun and games, but you begin to sense more and more that something deep is wrong as you go through it. And it undermines Willie's narrative. Now, th- there's not really a narrator character, but I, I, I don't think that I am outside of my rights if I say that Willie is somewhat like an unreliable narrator. Because so much of the plot and the the scenes in the play are seen through Willie's eyes, he sort of serves the function of a narrator in terms of setting the scenes. And and because he's so unreliable, he's so confused, he changes opinions on a whim. And he also seems to have facts completely backwards in his head. At one point, he goes to see Howard, who's the son of the man he used to work for. And Willie says, well, back when I was working for your father, I averaged $170 a week. And Howard goes... Willie, you never averaged you never $170 a week. Come on. Yeah. That was, that's not true at all. <laughs> and the all the whole time up to that point, really, the audience is on board with the idea that, oh, Willie used to be a really good salesman. Mm-hmm. He used to be great at it, and now he's not. And then suddenly Howard says that, and everybody goes, oh, maybe he was never that good at this job. Right, right. Yeah, even even in the flashbacks, you get a little bit of a flavor of that too. Like in in whatever the height of their family was, like pre Biff graduating or trying to graduate high school, um, is is kind of when you think that life was the best for the Lomans. And even then, they're struggling to make ends meet. Um, there, uh, he's he's not he's still working or he's working for commission at that point, and he's got not getting a whole bunch of com- commissions. So there, it's it's all kind of wrapped in this. He sells, right? He just he he knows how to sell it, and so he sells himself. He he figures out well, a way to present well. He knows how to well. sell like the bullshit. Exactly. You know? I mean, and and we didn't warn anybody about swearing. There's not really a ton of swearing in the <laughs> play. So, uh, <laughs> excuse my swear there, but I think it's the right word. You know, he sells this inflated baloney. Yeah. This this just world of lies. And I'm not sure that he ever could actually sell real products. Yeah. <laughs> you sit on a throne of lies. Right? Because even the suggestion that he was maybe going to make partner one time mm-hmm. is the suggestion that Linda says. And there's a world in which Willie has just been filling her full of hot air. Right. Yeah. Was it's... he ever really going to make partner? <laughs> I mean, I he know. didn't. He, he clearly didn't. And never got close enough to, like, make a lasting impression on the son of the owner of the company. So, yeah. And and every... Again, this whole family is swirling around that, right? Like, Biff has... One of the great realizations of the play is when Biff realizes that he, in fact was never a salesman for this guy who is Oliver, who he's going to get a job for. Right, yes. (laughs) Willie's tendency to inflate reality, we think at least, must not be totally related to the mental illness he's suffering from in the present reality of the play because it has existed so far through his life. Now, it's possible that he had an undiagnosed mental illness all throughout his life and that just living in that reality has somewhat spread that worldview to his sons because we learn that Biff had an inflated (laughs) sense of his own reality just the same (laughs) as Willie did. It's just this great scene where Biff realizes he goes to Oliver to try to get a ridiculous amount of money from a, from a stranger. $10,000 from someone. 
And 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 this is at a time when people are making Willie begs for forty dollars a week. So put that into perspective, real quick. Um, yeah, and like a fancy dinner is a dollar. Right. Yeah. So Biff goes to this person who he worked for, who he says he was a salesman for uh, in his sports store, and he wants to pitch an idea and get ten thousand dollars for this idea to bring it into life. And um, he goes there. He fails horribly, and uh, he he says. I realized sitting out there, I was never a salesman for him. I was like a stocking clerk. Yeah. <laughs> in he like the worked warehouse. in the shipping department. I never was a salesman for him. He doesn't know me from Adam. Right. I yeah. wasn't the one that he let lock up the store. That's just a story I told. <laughs> Who and you was get it that, that said it? And he's telling us that story in the scene. And how does Happy respond, Jackson? Because we learn about Happy's tendency to do this too, right? Biff says, This is what happened. I was never a salesman. Of course he didn't give me the money. He just laughed at me. And Happy says, Oh crap, dad's coming. So what are we gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> so he tells him, yeah, he tells him to tell another story. Like, and it just keeps, yeah, it just continues to snowball. He tells him, well, just tell him that you, 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 you saw him, but he needs to get, talk to a partner. So you're having lunch with him tomorrow. And, and, yeah. An inflated, <laughs> optimistic reality. A reality mm-hmm. that is not based in fact. Just right. like as Biff has been pretending his whole life that he was a salesman and even convincing himself to the point of dressing up and going to ask for money. I knew this guy. This guy loved me. I was his best salesman. Even just just like that reality must have gotten started a long time ago when somebody started saying, Biff, you were a great salesman for Bill Oliver, weren't you? And at that time, that long ago time when they started saying that, they all knew it was a lie or mm-hmm. at least not the truth. And then years later, it's become the truth. Just like that, happy. We're watching a new version of that get created in the moment. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, 10, this... 15 years from now, if the play hadn't ended when it does, Happy and Biff and Willie are going to be saying, remember that time you got lunch with Bill Oliver? Man, he was going to give you $15,000. <laughs> you should go ask him for more money. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the connection is strong. Put your arm around his shoulder. And <laughs> That's right. You, you watch the genesis of a new piece of bullshit yep and you can watch it snowball absolutely yeah yeah i wonder if it's also i mean it's a little too early for the uh part of the american dream that is you can be whatever you want to be part of it for for miller to be commenting on that but nevertheless it does a little bit because in these stories that they tell about themselves they're saying that they could do it like they're so confident in their ability to just get out and do it. And this goes all the way back to childhood as well. Willie just keeps slamming into Biff that he's great and well, he's and, awesome. And the, the really the tragic part, the thing that ends up hurting them is that the reason Willie says that his sons are going to be so successful in life and why they're going to have all these advantages has nothing to do with the things that would actually give them advantages. Hard work, study practice, mm-hmm. good connection, right? I mean, what it, his, when Willie says, my boys are going to be successful, it's because they're handsome. They're mm-hmm. charming. They're charismatic. They have fun personalities. They're charismatic. And those things end up not carrying them very far. Right, yeah. Yeah, the the, the lies and the, the, the ways that they, like, try to do things, it makes Biff flunk out of math class. He had three universities, they claim, again, we'll say. They claim. Uh, <laughs> Yep. That one is one of the ones where you're like, 
that's probably true. It could be. It could but very well be true. That, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> but nevertheless, there's probably at least one university that Biff had a scholarship lined up for, but he flunked out of math class by four points, so he couldn't do it. And um, and so, so so you just see you see all facets of the American dream crumbling away. And and, uh, and Miller paints the family of the Lomans really in stark opposition to Charlie and Bernard. Yeah. They're sort of mm-hmm. neighboring friend families because Charlie and Bernard, again, Charlie is the father, his son Bernard. Bernard grows up with Biff and Willie, uh, Biff and Happy. I mean, they are – they're basically everything the Lomans aren't, right? They're simple. They're hardworking and they yep. end up being successful because of it. Bernard mm-hmm. is a dweeb, an absolute <laughs> dweeb. No personality, real lame-o, in, right, at least right. in Willie's, again. And in this is one estimation. of those unreliable narrator things, right? Because Willie remembers this sniveling dweeb named Bernard <laughs> who was gross and right. a nerd and uh, had no confidence and no spine and didn't ever do anything. Now, that's not the Bernard we meet in the office. No. The Bernard Mm-mm. we meet in the office is charismatic and confident and suave and is about to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court. So that's one of those unreliable narrator things, right? right. I mean, how fair was Willie's remembering of young Bernard? Yeah, and how flavored was it by just a, a blind love for his sons? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, but I I do really like that contrast. And one of the harder scenes to watch is the scene where Willie has lost it all. He is he has um, been fired from his job, and he's kind of crawling to Charlie to ask for another fifty dollars, um, but actually a little bit more this time because he has to make his insurance premium. And Charlie like basically begs him to take a job from him. As, as much as someone who doesn't like someone can beg someone to take a job, Charlie does. And Willie won't take it. He just cannot work for Charlie because and, he and has this— importantly, the job is everything Willie wants. $50 right. a week, uh, doesn't have to travel, he'll be around, it's reliable. Charlie knows the struggles that Willie's going through. So even if Willie doesn't consciously know that this is perfect, the audience does because we know that Charlie's not going to fire him because he has dementia or whatever. Right, uh, Because yes. Charlie already knows that. Mm-hmm. So it fits perfectly in there for him, and he still he can't do it. He keeps this this fictional account of everything that Charlie is by the letter account that he will pay Charlie back someday. And we know that he's taken many loans from Charlie, pretending that there's paycheck because he's coming home with zero commission. Yeah. Yep. And and interestingly, way back in the first scene, there's this 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 scene where Willie like says he won't gamble with Charlie or something like that because Charlie cheats and he's not going to waste his money on Charlie. And Charlie storms off and you're like in the first scene you're like, "Wow, that first of all, they're both jerks, but that was an over uh, overreaction to <laughs> to that." But <laughs> when you figure out everything that Charlie has been giving him the money that he's gambling with. Yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, "Wow." Wow, Willie. <laughs> and you you imagine, we don't actually see how the card game unfolds, but just it's a sort of a trope in like friendship literature, right? That one of the ways to give your friend money when they won't accept your charity is yep. to quote unquote lose it in a card game. Yep. So and Charlie just seems to be that kind of guy. So I could totally imagine if the scene had continued without uh, Willie, you know, ac- wildly accusing Charlie of cheating and Charlie storming out, that Charlie might have just lost hand after hand. 
just lost some more money and some more money and some more money to Willie just as a way to kind of feed him uh, the cash that he needs. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely imagine that that's the kind of character he is. So yeah, he just over and over he he you you see the scenes beforehand of him putting down Charlie and and Bernard and in the end that's not his his world was nowhere near what they were able to accomplish. Right, they're successful and he's not. And really all the things that Willie told his sons were going to make them successful, the hot air right even Biff says the hot air that he pumped them full of end up being the things that were end up not being the things they needed. Yeah. And if and if he had encouraged Biff and Happy to be a little bit more like Bernard, <laughs> they might have been a little bit more like Bernard. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you see in both of them that that what they got was not what they wanted in the end because uh Happy kind of arguably made it, right? Like he went into or, business or is making it. Is yeah, in the on a successful track. It. Mm-hmm. But he is deeply unhappy and un, un uh, appeased, I guess. <laughs> uh, unsatisfied. There we go. That's the word I actually wanted. He's unsatisfied with what he has, and he continues to spend it all on his lifestyle and his apartment and his cars and and women and and, and drinking around and everything. And he just he's he's not satisfied. Biff isn't satisfied. He keeps well, uh, well real quick on on happy. You know, he has sort of a heartbreaking monologue right there in that first scene about his situation, and he says, you know. I've got this decent job. It pays pretty well. I have an apartment. I have all the girls that I could ever want. I buy all this lavish stuff. I'm doing pretty well. But the only thing I end up doing with my life is waiting for the guy above me to die. Right. And the worst part (laughs) is that if he dies and I get his job, I know the guy above me is terribly unhappy. He yeah. keeps buy, make building and selling houses just as quick as he can. He's, he's not satisfied. And Happy kind of reflects, I'm going to be the same way. Right. <laughs> I'm going to make all that money and I'm never going to be happy with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. He'll just keep climbing and it's it's not going to do anything for him. <laughs> but he can't get out of it either. Like you get the, for all their dreaming, Biff and Happy spend a lot of time dreaming about a couple things. One of Everybody them is like a cattle ranch. spends a lot of time dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. A That's good true. three quarters of the play is dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, down to like the character descriptions describe what level of dreaming they are. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like- <laughs> uh-huh. So as we as we move into sort of Biff's idyllic reality, I do want to um, bring in this feature of the thematic elements of the plot. When we studied this script in like intro to theater class, Jackson, remember all the way back to when we were wee little freshmen. Back, back into the eons Back before. into the eons ago. <laughs> and we took uh, whatever they called it. They changed the class name a couple times even while we were in school. I think mine was called theater as a fine art or something. Yep, um, it was the too. intro class, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and we went through theater history and uh, American theater themes. And one of the themes that we talked about and then Death of a Salesman kind of became a shining example of is the myth of rural simplicity. Mm, Or um, sometimes when I would describe it to the students that I was coaching through their tests, sort of the myth of pastoral perfection. This idea that the city and the grind and the businesses and everything going on with that sort of day-to-day work in a city, taking the train, driving your car, living near all these apartment buildings sucks and is full of crime and is going to just deplete your soul, is never going to be worth anything. And the idea is that 
sort of those rural communities where you can be out in the sun. I think this is a Biff line. And all I want is to be out in the sun with my shirt off, just working hard, getting up a sweat, working on things I can feel with my hands, watching animals be born and die in that cycle of life. There's this perfection and this simplicity to rural or pastoral life that you can't access in the city. And Biff and Happy end up becoming sort of the uh, perfect examples of how that myth plays out. And this isn't really a myth that Miller is commenting on, I don't think, as much as it's one that he believed. Right, yeah. And that was like a subtle undercurrent of American theater at the time. I think I think it was just like something that no many people were aware of that they were leaning into, and and lo and behold they were. Um, and, and right, it's, and, and even if we couldn't say that about Miller for sure, he definitely wrote characters that believed in this idea. You know, one of the running gripes that Willie Loman has is they built all these apartment buildings around my house. I used to yeah. have this sort of beautiful house on the outskirts of town with these huge fields around. Me and all these and trees. trees. Yeah, and, and they cut them all down and built up these apartment buildings. Now I can't grow anything. I don't have any land. I can't right. see the sun. Yeah, the last choice, really, that uh, Willie makes before he runs off is to is to go and buy seeds and try planting a garden in the yard. <laughs> like that's that's where we find him in the in the final scene of the play or the second to last scene of the play is he's pounding holes into the ground and planting carrots and lettuce and and other vegetables in the ground in in, in his yard. So he is right. striving for that as well. Right, in his in his final death rattle moments. And yeah. Biff, it, this is all of what Biff is, right? He just can't hack it as a salesman. It doesn't work for him. He doesn't want to be that. He wants to be something like a farmhand out in the sun, in the fields, working, or working hard in that fashion, doing that sort of physical work. That's mm-hmm. everything that he wants to go back and do. And every time he comes into the city, he feels dirty and like he's giving something up, you know, that he can't get into the rhythms of life like he can out in the country. Mm-hmm. So what are the short I don't think this play really I don't know if the play really uh addresses the shortcomings of that. Perhaps it addresses the tragedy that um uh pursuing it that hard does, which is Biff's loss of his family, essentially, his ability to interact with his family. But I don't know that the way of life itself is critiqued within the context of the play. Yeah, I'm not sure that it really is either. Certainly what is critiqued is pretending that you want something more or better than that, right? Because Willie uh, thinks that he wants to be living in the city and be a salesman where he can travel and, and have his family live in this sort of beautiful man, you know, th- this this great area. And really, we learn over the course of the play that he's really good with his hands. He's never as happy as he is when he's doing some manual labor. I think Charlie says the man's never as happy as when he's got a cement bucket in one hand. You know, we learn that he rebuilt a a whole bathroom, that he built the garage, he put a ceiling in the living room, he's built all the decks. Willie is this this sort of um, 
he's a, he's a carpenter. He's a builder at heart. That's what he should have done. And you get the sense that he maybe <laughs> should have gone off with Ben, assuming that offer really existed as he remembered it. Right, um, right. And run Timberland somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, but even he, when he hears Biff say something along those lines, storms in and is like, we're not carpenters. We're not people who work the land. We are people, we're salesmen in this family. So it's this it's this thing that he has latched onto so firmly, even though evident, evident to the contrary would suggest that his life would have been happier if he had left it behind. Hey, happier. Happier, yeah. <laughs> and and that he he's so unhappy and he's such a failure because he put his life's energy into the wrong thing. And that's one of the real tragedies is that he probably never would have been that good of a salesman. Yeah. Even if the even if the mental illness that un, that unfortunately grabs hold of him had had held off for a while or had never happened, he never would have been that good of a salesman. I think Linda in the Requiem after the suicide even says, you know, he never really made much money. Or or actually no, this is when he when she's going after the boys. She said, you know, your father was never somebody that made that much money. He was never that good of a salesman. But he did everything for his family, and and she has sort of that heartbreaking line. Where, where does he get a medal for that? Yeah, yep, yeah, and it's I mean that that desire uh, is is what is held up at the end. But then I mean he he, despite of all that he tried, you're right, he absolutely failed. He failed in many ways, <laughs> um, both as a salesman, he failed as a father, he failed as a husband uh, <laughs> and 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 yet these people are around him still. but I think that is the big thing to take away is that this one thing that was kind of different or not different that that this pursuit that was not ultimately fulfilling for him he pursued it with all he had and that brought about his ultimate uh downfall with in in multiple facets of his life and what you see in the play and that so much of the play exists in memories you see a lot of those moments where yeah. i could have done this or this and i end up doing the wrong thing and then years later, there are tragic results, right? I could have gone to Alaska with Ben or stayed and been a salesman. And I may have decided to do the wrong thing in that moment. I could have had an affair or not had an affair. Right. And I decided to do the wrong thing in that moment. And those consequences play out on and on and on. In one of his rants with Ben, you know, the imaginary Ben, the, the hallucinogenic Ben, the, the, the Ben that is delusion, uh, Willie says something like, oh, Ben, how do we get back to the great times? How do we get back to that, that simplicity? Back when our house was at the edge of town, when we had so much land and sunlight and we were planting things and I had these two strapping boys who still loved me and I was a good salesman, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> kind of, sort of, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and that, that kind of mythos that he built up around that. Myth, even... yes, the myth. That's right. That's a great yeah. word for it. Willie has constructed a myth of his life. Mm -hmm. A myth of how things could have been, and a myth of how things were, and a myth of how things are. Absolutely. All three of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just, he, he chooses to look at the at life in, in a different kind of rose-tinted glasses, and, and systematically throughout this play, different people get tired of it. And, and, most, and most of those people are Biff. It, yeah, right, Biff, because it comes to a head, I think, in, in one of just, one of the reasons why this play, I think, is so, so good 
is the climax scene between Biff and Willie. The way that Miller has written Biff's tactics, because as a, as a way to escape what's going on, as a way to get what he wants, Biff's tactic is to tear himself down. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he he what's going on is that Biff has lived in this guilt of the fact that Willie has made Biff out to be this this person who could be a success but isn't. And and Biff knows that Willie thinks that Biff is intentionally failing out of spite. And what is the spite, Jackson? Let's set that up. Why would Willie think it has to do with spite? Well, I think it's because he he feels judged by Biff for his affair. Like Biff discovers, um, Biff runs to Willie when he finds out that that his uh, his his grades won't be enough to go to college. He runs to Willie in Boston and catches him in in an affair with another woman. And then because of that, Biff decides not to take summer school, which means he doesn't graduate high school, which means he doesn't get all these football scholarships, which means his life isn't everything it could have been. And Willie's longstanding accusation is, Biff, you can be successful. You're the best person ever. You're right. this. You're, <laughs> you're, you're a millionaire in waiting, but yeah. you're not doing it. You refuse to do it because of spite. And so Biff lives in the shame and guilt and shadow of Willie's expectations. And to escape it, the tax tactic that Biff uses is, I'm not any of that. Right, yeah. I'm a bum. I'm a failure. It's not spite. I just suck. Yeah. I'm just bad. I'm the type of person nobody would give money to. I'm not a great person. <laughs> My favorite line, I think the most heartbreaking line, the, the, the spearhead line of the whole play is in the middle of this fight between Willie and Biff. Biff finally says, Pop, I'm a dime a dozen, and so are you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a powerhouse of a line. What a punch. Yeah. I'm a dime a dozen, Pop, and so are you. We're just a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it, the tactic is to accuse everybody of being normal. Right. Not of being abnormal or weird or less than normal mm-hmm. or a worse or a failure. Or, or the accusation awesome. is just, or <laughs> awesome, right. The accusation is just, we're just like everybody else. We weren't going to be more successful. This was just your myth. We've been living in your mythic world where we were going to be the best ever for our whole lives. And we're just a dime a dozen. Right. We're nothing. <laughs> yep. And it, yeah, <laughs> I love that that last scene. It's all it's it's all you know governed with the economy of knowing that Biff knows he was going to kill himself. He pulls out the the rubber hose at the at one point during the scene, and Willie can't even look at it. And it's just so much. Biff Biff almost like manages to get away at the end, but Willie just like throws enough lines at him that get him to turn around and confront the situation. Right, because Biff is basically just going to run away. The plan is just, I'm not going to be around anymore. I'm going to leave. You're never going to hear from me again because that's what's best for everybody because then you can forget about me. You can move on. And he wants to kind of leave on this punch of like, I'm just like everybody else. Just just move on. He doesn't want to live with the weight of the expectations anymore, which is what the fight ends up being about. The fight is Biff saying, I'm... Just like everybody else, I'm never going to be successful. And it has nothing to do with spite. It's just what it is. And Willie's saying, you could be better. You could be awesome. You could be great. But you're not doing it because of spite. And then comes two words that I think shake everything a little bit. Because Biff says, finally, when he collapses and is crying, he Mm. says, there's no spite in it anymore. Yeah. 
There's no spite in it anymore. And what mm-hmm. does the anymore imply? There was there at the was. beginning. There was, yeah. Yep. At the beginning, I I intentionally ruined my life mm-hmm. out of spite because the person who told me I could be great was having an affair. Yeah. And now I have nothing left. My life is ruined. It's not spite anymore. I couldn't succeed if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Which Willie takes as him saying he loves him. Yeah. <laughs> Which but, is just its own touching moment. In the fa- in the again, in the face of conflicting accounts, Willie chooses to believe that Biff loves him and he will understand his choice to kill himself for the life insurance. And money. not only that, but that somehow the the end of this whole conversation is well, Biff could be great if he just had some extra money. Right. I can give him some extra money. I can give him some extra money. Isn't that right, Ben? And this is where that shadow delusion comes back. And right. they've been they've been plotting for about a scene already about what is what Willie is planning now that he's been fired. He uh, has gotten a little extra money from Charlie, but that has set him into its own spiral as he's had this uh, a traumatic confrontation with adult Bernard. So all this stuff is spiraling, and finally he gets the idea. In fact, he says it in his conversation with Charlie at the office. I'm worth more dead than alive. Mm-hmm. And that's where this running, it's just a small plot device that doesn't ever really become big until the end, which is just that Willie needs to pay one more payment on his life insurance. Right. That's a that's a debt that's coming up that he needs to pay. And they mentioned it a few times, it just kind of passing by. I just I need a little extra money to pay my life insurance. Yep. And then that becomes everything at the yeah. end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it uh Makes it this attempt at a selfless sacrifice at the end, trying to right his wrongs in an ultimately very harmful way. But, but nevertheless, it 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 is the underpinning for why he would try to do it at all. Right, and what does he do, Jackson? He drives off. <laughs> That's all we know. Uh, <laughs> he, well, yeah, the, the stage directions describe like a musical. Uh, crash, I think, is actually yeah. the word that is used. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're meant to imply he drives the car into whatever, yeah. a tree, he, a building. He, yeah, he dies in a car crash, likely self-inflicted. And uh, we have the uh, the Requiem at the end, for the, for the end of the play. No, that, no, that we've said this, the subtitle of this play, Death of a Salesman, Certain Private Conversations in Two Acts and a Requiem. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> it's a little wordy there, Miller. Yeah. <laughs> I would have just called a it a play in two acts. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But the the Requiem is uh, a sort of imagining of the aftermath of the funeral, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very nice scene. Um it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a dot for me. Like it feels like a bit too much of a punctuation at the end, but there is a really nice, uh, the really beautiful line from Linda at the end. Um, she gets the last lines of the play about, forgive me, I don't even, I don't understand, I can't cry, it just feels like you're on the road again. And you're not really gone, and it's very weird. <laughs> but but especially because you're gone now and we're finally free. And, and you being gone is what made us free. It's weird. Right, because we haven't mentioned this either, that they're about to make the final payment on their house. Yeah. And, and so they're finally going to be on top of their mortgage and not have to pay that anymore and, and own the house outright, which is a big deal for them. And uh, will will ease their financial pains quite a bit and make it so Willie doesn't really need to even earn that much money for them to survive. Right. But they do have to make this sort of one final payment. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and yeah, so it's in that last the 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 that that last bit, that last push that it all became too much for him. And it's like a very sad Ebenezer Scrooge went wrong sort of funeral. No one comes. One of Willie's delusions is that everyone in New England will come to his funeral and Biff and, and Happy will see how important he was. And it's like a very small amount of people at and, this funeral. And I think that that's a really important moment yeah. that we learn. And it, it might be, it might be among the very few reasons to actually include the Requiem scene yeah. um, is yep. that I do think that learning that no one came to the funeral is important for us in understanding how fully Willie has deluded everyone around him and yeah. including himself, right? He, the, the phrase over and over again is that Willie is well-liked. He claims to be well-liked in the Northeast. Everyone knows him. Everybody sees him. I have tons of friends in the Northeast. And then occasionally he changed that around and says, nobody really likes me. I don't have any friends in the Northeast. Nobody greets mm-hmm. me. And then he'll go back and say, oh, people love me up there. I could go and see 10 people by, the, by noon. And so what the reality is goes back and forth all play. And then we learned yeah. that the being well-liked as he thought didn't end up meaning much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charlie has a great line in there, too, about um, about about the way that he lives with the dream always out ahead of him. And, and, and when people – the dream that people will pay attention to him and that he'll be important. And when people stop paying attention to him, how can you blame someone for falling to pieces when that dream that they pursued their whole life – is proved to be not available to them anymore. Yeah, Charlie has another great line too. It's like uh, J.P. Morgan. Nobody really liked J.P. Morgan when he was in the hot tub or something, but with his pockets on, J.P. Morgan was very well liked. Yeah, exactly. Sort of, he he kind of pokes at <laughs> Willie's idea that well, salesmanship and and being successful is about being charismatic and being liked. And Charlie says, no, it's it's really just about being rich. And yeah, that's why you never really were successful is you really never had any money. So never, yeah. nobody really liked you that much. Yep. <laughs> There's so many lines in this play. It is it is uh, a beautiful play, extremely well written, impossible to suss out every single line because it's just gold all the way through. There, I mean, yeah, there's so much. High school classes teach this all the time. College classes teach this all the time because there's so much contained in it. We are running a little bit long, but I, I think that this conversation is worth having. So I'd like to put one final few minutes into this question, Jackson. A few weeks ago, we talked about Man of La Mancha. And Man of La Mancha is also about a man that exists in his own delusion. What? When we talked about Man of La Mancha, one of the things we talked about is, is Don Quixote's delusion really one which we actually want to live in? Is the fact that he lives in a world totally of his own imagining really all that great, as the play seems to indicate that it might be? How how are Willie Loman and Don Quixote related? What are I'm just interested in this idea that these are two men that both live in delusion and myth and their own realities apart from the world, and both end in death. Yet one play is uh, remarkably inspiring and hopeful, and one play is a, a pretty dark tragedy. Hmm. I think I'm going to draw in uh, a third play into this equation. All right. And, <laughs> and talk about uh, some of the theme from All My Sons as well. Um, again, Willie Loman serves inward 
into his family and tries so hard and 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 breaks himself for his family. Don Quixote serves outward. Um, his delusion, at least to himself, is to show off to the world that one man scorned and covered with car- scars can still reach the unreachable stars. Um, so his his service is to the greater world. Again, um, oh boy, what was the simplistic name from All My Sons? Joe. <laughs> the Joe. Joe's oh, yeah. uh, tragic flaw is that he looked inward to see what served his family most and forgot that he had some responsibility to the world around him. Um, I think that 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 has some bearing in this. Um, I think that you're really right. Yeah, that some of the difference in the way that these two delusional men live in the world relates to what priorities they have. Quixote's delusion is that he's this grand servant. And Willie's delusion is I'm better than everyone else. And my sons are better than everyone else. And all together, we're better than everyone else. Couple that with this idea that Willie's delusion ends up falling apart partially due to his own infidelity, right? Because mm-hmm. he gets caught having an affair and Biff sees that happening and Biff gives up his scholarship. Biff doesn't go on to become successful. And the truth is that if either of his sons or both of his sons had been more successful, Willie's life would have been fine, right? He would have worked until his mental condition meant that he couldn't work anymore. And then he would have done what almost everyone else in the place suggests that he should do, which is he should have just leaned on his sons. His sons, mm-hmm. now that they're successful working people, should have just taken care of him. Because yeah. he's got he's got a really debilitating mental illness. He can't work anymore, but he has to. But that the reason why that can't occur anymore, we well, at least two of the reasons. One is that he gets caught in the affair, and two is that he didn't really prepare his sons for real life. He told them, "You're better than everyone else." Their whole lives. Right, and then they got into the world and found out that in fact, <laughs> there's a lot of people who got that told to them. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And, and the way that Don Quixote relates to other people and the way that Willie Loman relates to other people are hugely different, right? Oh, fundamentally Quixote, different. Yeah, Don Quixote's the kind of guy that says, I just beat up all these guys that were attacking my, my uh, Dulcinea and now I'm going to minister to their wounds and heal them and make sure that they're all right. Willie Loman's the kind of guy that says, you see this guy Bernard? He's a yeah. dweeb. Yeah. Don't talk don't talk to him. Don't be like don't, him. Don't hang what out a nerd. You're yeah. way better than him. <laughs> yeah. Also, Bernard, tell my son all the answers to the math yeah. test. <laughs> also help him cheat, please, Bernard. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a fascinating parallel. And I think I, I think that the, the 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 delusionary nature of noticing the delusionary nature of both of them is fun to to note. And uh and and in general, just to note the f- the form of this theater in in general as it is. We, as we've said before, Arthur Miller is uh, in love with Greek tragedy in some capacity. He enjoys uh, bringing those themes in. I don't think that this one is as clean-cut Greek tragedy as some of the other ones we mentioned. Certainly, no, View from no, the Bridge is like nailed Greek tragedy. But um, all those themes are in there as well. Yeah, and and lots of the covers for Death of a Salesman have sort of Willie Loman collapsed on the ground under the weight of all his failure. And lots of the covers for Man of La Mancha have Don Quixote bearing his <laughs> standard, striking forward. And that that image actually carries into the ends of the plays too, right? Because yeah. Linda is sort of crumpled on the grave or being supported by Biff and hobbling off in her own sorrow at what's occurred and the fact that Willie Loman's dream failed all of them. 
and, and can't sustain themselves. But Aldonza Dulcinea ends her part of the play by looking upward, right? Looking forward. The yep. dream is going to continue. I'm going to carry it. And it all has to do with where the dreams are focused, where the delusional reality centers itself. Well, that that's got to be it. I'm afraid. <laughs> we yes, are, I'm looking at the clock too, we're, Jackson. We're quite a ways over. <laughs> we're gonna get bumped off of Podbean, but that's okay. <laughs> this has been such a fun month to dive into Arthur Miller and uh, and and just really get into some of these plays. I haven't read them in. Oh, goodness, it's probably been 10 years for some of them. Um, and it was so great to get get back into them again and, and dig into some of these really complex themes from the previous century's foremost American playwright in a lot of ways. Yeah, this was great. We will continue as we look towards what the next season's themed month is going to be. Uh, we are accepting uh-huh. suggestions, if you have them, uh, yeah. about what we should do for four plays, one month of plays, all having something to do with each other. They don't have to be by the same playwright. Like, musical month wasn't all by the same playwright, but they were all musicals. So uh, please send our, our, our suggestions to noscriptpodcast at gmail.com or by commenting on any of our social medias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the social medias are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. No script podcast is the username there and or tag or you know word for account um and you can find us all there and uh, continue the conversation with us we would love to continue the conversation with you as we know many of you have read or interacted with or been in or seen some of these plays so keep the conversation going we'd love to keep talking to you If you liked this episode or if you liked our Miller Month, if you liked other episodes, please share this episode on your social media. That's one of the best things you can do for us besides becoming a patron on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, during April, we are going to begin posting patron-only posts over there. So if you are a patron, you will start to see some of those patron-only posts over there starting in April. That is just a week away. We'll get those posted sometime in April, so be on the lookout for that. We'll be back to our normal program next week. You can find us on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Yeah, until next week when we're doing something besides a Miller play. We're going <laughs> back to the back to the world of, I don't know, different. <laughs> I was about to say more modern, but I don't know that that's true. Yeah, something so, different. <laughs> so, something else. So, so until then, get excited about that, and I will see you next time. I'm Jackson Nikolai. And I'm Jacob Van Christensen. Thanks for listening to Miller Month on No Script, the podcast. Bye-bye. Cough drop tastes really weird. Sorry. I appreciate your sympathy. I can tell that you know that I mean it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy.